I encourage you to take out your Bible as we continue through the book of Genesis and we're looking at the narratives, the stories in the latter part of the book. And we're in Genesis chapter 28 today. Thank you. Genesis chapter 28, verse 10. Specifically, if you take a moment and look there. and Brendan, you turned the lights up already? There we go. All right. Listen carefully as we give honor to God's word. Genesis chapter 28, verse 10. <clears throat> Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place, and he stayed there that night. And because the sun had set, taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Verse 15, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, or Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I've set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Well, on your outline here, just to review where we are, we've talked about Abraham, who at the end of his life became a confident man of faith. He struggled with that. At first he lied, he doubted, and then when he put Isaac on that altar and he was willing to plunge the knife into his heart, God knew that he was a man of faith, confident that God, that he would do whatever God told him to do. We think of Isaac and how Isaac lied. He and Rebekah showed favoritism, but yet they passed on their faith on to Jacob and Esau and their other kids. And now we come to Jacob and specifically we look at his life. His name later becomes known as deceiver, supplanter, jealousy, deception. And so as we think about that, I think about how God works in our lives in the areas of sin that we deal with. There's a story about a family that lived in Johannesburg, South Africa. And they had relatives over in a accompanying town, Pretoria, that owned a bake shop. And uh, they made chocolate cake and tarts and all these things. And, and uh, one day they went over to visit their uncle there and found out the uncle said, every time I hire a new employee, they steal my chocolate cakes. So the uncle got wise and he came up with a great idea. So when he hired someone, 
He said to them, you can eat all the cake and all the tarts and anything you want, as long as you want, have all you want. Well, they thought that was a great perk. Pretty soon they began to eat, and then they got sick of it, and cakes no longer got stolen. And sometimes what God needs to do in our lives to bring us to where he wants us to be in the area of our sin is he lets us uh, do what we want to do and then let the natural consequences uh, bring the pain into our life till we come to the place and say, God, I'm not going to do that anymore. So our purpose today is that every believer needs to see the cycles of sin in their lives and see the destruction it creates to themselves and to the lives of those who are under their care. Let's take a moment and let's commit this time to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that this would not be just another Sunday, but Lord, that you would examine the depths of our hearts. As John Calvin said many times, that our hearts are idol makers. And Lord, it's so easy for us because we were born with depravity, we were born with sin, to have that natural bent toward doing what we want to do and to be independent of you. But Lord, if we have you as Savior, you've put a new nature within us to overcome that. And so Lord, as we look into our lives and we look to our tendencies and our areas of sin, may we be willing to let you speak to us and look to how we can break these cycles of dysfunction that will help us from many heartaches in our personal lives, but also hurt, not hurt those in relationship that we have with others, Lord, as well. So pray you just uh, help us to have open hearts today as we study your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, let's go to school and let's learn from the life of Jacob and how the cycles of dysfunction took over his life and even passed on to another generation. And may we learn, as I prayed, that we would not hold on to our habitual sins because of the heartache it creates for us and others. The first thing on your outline we see is Jacob's dream. Jacob's dream. He has a, a wonderful opportunity here to have a meeting with the Lord in a dream. And his response was to worship him. And whenever we experience God in a fresh way, in an intimate way, our first response should be to worship. Jacob is now the same age that Abraham was when God called him out of the Ur of the Chaldees. In verses 12 through 14, the symbolism here of the ladder with angels going up and down is that God is ever-present and he's personally involved with each and every one of us as human beings. And also, the picture here is to know that there's spiritual warfare going on all around us. The dream given to Jacob here was to encourage a lonely sojourner. He was on a long journey. His mom had sent him away. He's to go up to be with Uncle Laban after cheating Esau out of the blessing and the birthright. And so I'm sure that in some ways he was homesick to be back with his family, but he had a long way to go, 450 miles. In Genesis chapter 28, we read these verses in verse 12. It says, And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to the heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on this ladder. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now we have a map up here. It gives you a little bit of a geographic idea 
down there near Bathsheba is where he starts out and he's headed all the way up to Haran in the region of Padan Aram. And so along the way, he stops for the night and he pulls out a rock and lays his head on this rock and he falls asleep. And the picture here we see of this dream, the angels descending and ascending. What is that all about? God is peeling back Jacob's spiritual eyes so he can see what you and I can't see. What's going on around us? The angels, the fallen angels, the good angels of God that are battling it out. The angels who are ascending are those angels who've been assigned to the territory from which Jacob had just come from. And they were finishing their protection of Jacob as they went up into heaven. The angels coming down were the ones that were going to follow him the rest of the way on his journey in this Gentile land. And we see God at the top of the ladder assuring him that he would protect him and be with him through his entire travels. This shows us that you and I, we are never outside of God's care that he always has as guardian angels around us to protect us, to be there for us, that there's spiritual warfare that uh, we won't see till we get to heaven. We can't see it around us because we don't have those spiritual eyes. But isn't it great to know that we have angels fighting on our behalf to care for us? God is now revealing to Jacob that he is the bearer of the covenant blessing of the promise and the protection of God. It's being passed down to him from Abraham through Isaac to Jacob. Notice in verses 13 and 14 that God reiterates that he will use Jacob just like he used Abraham, just like he used Isaac, and he promised that he would give him a land, he promised that he would give him a people, a large nation, and he would bless them, and through them, blessing would come to other people as well. We've heard that promise several times throughout the book of Genesis. Well, God caps off the conversation and with these great reaffirming words to Jacob. In verse 15, and I believe they're applicable to us in Genesis 28. Behold, I am with you, Jacob, and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. In the book of Joshua, can you imagine what Joshua must have went through? He was Moses' uh, close servant all of the time that Moses was alive. And we get to Joshua chapter 1, and God says, Thou, my servant Moses is dead. And he says to him, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you as you lead Israel into the promised land. Think of some of the last words that Jesus said to his disciples before they watched him go up into heaven as he left the Mount of Olives. In Matthew 28, 20, it says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Notice that recurring theme throughout the Bible. God is always present with his people. He's our unseen guest. He's our best friend as we walk with him through life. Notice Jacob's response to God meeting him there on the road to Haran. First of all, fear him. Fear him as an act of worship. To reverence him. To honor him. God is here. He's in our midst. How are we going to respond? We need to fear him, pay him honor and glory for all of who he is. In verse 16 of Genesis 28, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. In verse 17, he says as well that I am afraid. He was afraid. Have you ever been in a worship service or experienced worship 
for yourself at home or somewhere else and you get the sense of God's presence in your life? Have you ever heard that still small voice of God letting you know through his message to you that you are valuable to him, that he loves you? I think of a story from Lisa Beamer in the book Let's Roll. You know, that book was written about Todd Beamer uh, on September, you know, September 11, 2001, when uh, one of the planes was attempting to fly to the Capitol and fly into it. Todd Beamer was on that flight and talked to his wife, and the last words he said to her, let's roll. And a group of them went up and broke into the cockpit, and of course that plane crashed in Somerset, Pennsylvania, and she became an instant widow. She wrote the book, Let's Roll, and it said in the book, talking about the death of her dad, she said, slowly I began to understand that the plans God has for us don't just include good things, but the whole array of human events. The prospering that God talks about in the book of Jeremiah is often the outcome of a bad event. She said, I remember my mom saying that many people look for miracles, things that are in their human minds to fix a difficult situation. But many miracles, however, are not a change to the normal course of human events. They're found in God's ability and desire to sustain and nurture people through even the worst situations. And then you see this phrase on the screen. Somewhere along the way, I stopped demanding that God fix the problems in my life and started to be thankful for his presence as I endured them. That's a sign of maturity of understanding that God is going to walk with you. Sometimes he will calm the storm, and sometimes he's going to walk through the storm with you to the end. We don't always know what he's going to do, but we know his presence is powerful. Second of all, Jacob uh, began to worship him, to worship God. Look at verse 17 of Genesis 28. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, And this is the gate of heaven. He thought he was on the threshold of glory in his dream, hearing and seeing, somehow seeing God speak to him. The Canaanites called that location geographically Luz before Jacob came by. But Jacob renamed it Bethel or Bethel, Beth meaning house, El meaning God, the house of God. The name Bethel stuck in that location carried both names for a while, and Jacob would reaffirm that name when he stopped there later on on his trip back from Padam Aram after he uh, got his wife and family, and he built an altar at that location in Genesis 35. It has a long history of events recorded in the Bible. It would later become a major place of worship for the Jews, the holy place for the Israelites. And they would say of Bethel, God is seen. God is seen. When they saw that rock that we'll talk about in a moment that was placed there as a pillar to remind them of what happened there, it was the fact that God was seen by Jacob. This act of worship was a result of Jacob seeing the Lord in his dream. And when you encounter the living God, the only thing you can do is fall at his feet and worship him. Have you ever encountered, as I mentioned, the experience with God in your life? Have you ever sensed that when you're maybe reading God's word? Maybe you're listening to worship music in your car and the spirit of God, the presence of God overwhelms you. Maybe you're out in nature somewhere. I remember going on a missions trip to Brazil, leading a team. And every morning for a half hour, we would sit out in the mountains of Brazil and we would have to 
get into God's word, the team was all spread out, and you just sense God's presence. Maybe it's through a sermon preached. Maybe it's just doing exercise where you're outside walking in nature or, or running or whatever it may be, and you happen on a beautiful landscape, and you just sense the presence of God. Well, Abraham, I mean, Jacob sensed God's presence in this dream. And then he memorialized God. He memorialized him. He built a memorial to him. Memorialized him. In Genesis chapter 28, look at verse 18. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. What does the pouring of oil mean? Well, oil had a sanctifying or cleansing property to it. Whenever someone poured oil on someone or something, they were setting apart that object as holy, as a blessed object of the Lord. Jacob wanted something there to stand to remember his experience with God and to tell others of God's promise that he would never leave them or forsake them. You know, in Joshua, it talks about in Joshua chapter 4, the story of the Israelites crossing the Jordan River, finally getting into the promised land 40 years after wandering in the wilderness. And the Jordan River separates as the priests went in first and dipped their feet in the water. And as the Israelites went across on dry land, Joshua told the priests to pick up 12 stones and put them on the side that they arrived on. And they were to ever be a memorial of the miracle that God had done there to get the Israelites into the promised land. And he says in Joshua chapter 4 that he wanted people to ask this question, what do those stones over there mean as they walked by so the story could be told? Stones were a very important thing like altars in the Old Testament. So he built a memorial, but then he also made a vow to God. He made a vow to God. Look at verses 20 through 21. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Then the Lord shall be my God. He realizes that the God of Abraham and Isaac is finally his as well. It's an important distinction that he doesn't stand on the God of his fathers, but that he has an experience himself with God and it becomes his faith. And because you've experienced God's presence, how has it made it your faith? Is God your own? If not, I just encourage you to get alone with God and to fast and pray and get into his word until you hear from God. Sometimes in the busyness of life, I need to pull away and do that as well and be reminded of the relationship that we have with God. In Job 42, after Job suffered for a long time, after he tried to blame God for all his suffering, and then you remember toward the end of the book, God sits Job down and says, you know, who, who made the behemoth? Who keeps the waters from going over the land? And all of a sudden, Job is, pride is shrinking very much, right? And he gets to chapter 42, and finally at the end of God talking to him, Job says, here and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. And then he said, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. 
He said, after that suffering experience, I really now understand who you are and what you're doing and that you are sovereign. And notice his response. He repented. He bowed and worshiped to God. And then notice what Jacob does before he leaves the site. He provides an offering to God, an offering. Look at verse 22. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. As part of his act of worship through this whole experience, he says, God, 10% of everything I have is yours. Abraham tithes in Genesis 14, 20, before the law was given. We now see another act of worship by Jacob giving a tenth of his wealth to God in worship. Tithing is an act of worship, saying everything I have belongs to you, God, and I'm merely a manager or a steward of the possessions that you've given me. It's showing our trust that he will provide and take care of our needs as we give that 10% or hopefully we give more than that to the local church and then we give offerings to local church or other Christian ministries or missionaries as well. But the tithe goes to local church and then the offering goes beyond that. So this is an outward act of displaying the faith that's within our heart when we give at our offering time. The application here is that God is ever present and involved wherever we go. That's the takeaway for Jacob. That God is ever present and he's involved wherever we go. And so how comforting that is, how encouraging that is, that we think of those angels in this picture, we know we have angels surrounding us as well, even though we can't see them. And that God is with us no matter what we face. Well, take that home and think about it. Think about the times you and I thought, where was God in all of this? And then we can look back and we see when those difficult times come, God's hand involved in everything that occurred. And if we know him as Savior, he truly becomes our God. And now we see that the deceiver, Jacobs, gets to get a taste of his own medicine. As we move to the second point, Jacob is deceived, an act of treachery. Remember last week we talked about all the deception that he was involved in. Stealing the birthright, stealing the blessing, all kinds of things that he did. Well, he met his match with Laban, Uncle Laban. And so Laban deceives Jacob. Laban deceives Jacob. Jacob meets Rachel, similar kind of to the story of Isaac. Remember they sent Eliezer out to find a wife for Isaac and he comes to a well says, God, the first one that will say that will pour water for myself and for my camels, maybe we believe this is the one that you've decided will be Isaac's wife. Well, so Jacob happens on the well and he kind of prays a little prayer and he looks around and finally he sees this beautiful young lady named Rachel. And the well is always a place of a sign of God's blessing and the sovereignty of God comes on and so there he meets up with Rachel, meets up with Laban, goes back home, ends up working seven years to earn the right to marry her as Laban had laid out. He paid the dowry gift through his working for Laban. But on his marriage night, as you know, Laban switches sisters and Jacob ends up being married to Leah. In Genesis 29, turn over to another chapter, Genesis 29, verse 25. Genesis 29, verse 25. 
And so after the, after the evening of the wedding ceremony, it says in verse 25, and in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Laban left that little piece out of the contract, didn't he? And so here we go again, that Jacob knew what it was. And I bet God pierced his heart. It must have caused him to think back about how he treated Esau, his brother, and stolen the blessing and the birthright from him. He may have known that God was disciplining him. And in Laban, he had met his match as far as deception was concerned. And Jacob and Laban would continue on with these uh, manipulations and deceptions for a number of years. Jacob had deceived his own brother and father. Now he, dece he was deceived by his own uncle. So this was God's decree against Jacob. It was divine retribution. Jacob had to come face to face with his own deceptive spirit. And it appears this was a learning time for Jacob because he didn't complain and he went out and he served seven more years to have Rachel's hand in marriage. I don't know about you, but I've learned in my life that when um, I don't learn the lesson that God has for me to learn the first time, uh, it just seems to keep reoccurring until you finally wake up and say, I've had enough about beating my head against the wall. When I was very young, I just had a very rebellious spirit uh, toward my parents, especially my dad. And even after I became a Christian, that relationship never got completely repaired as he became a pastor. But as that time went on, I just remember I was the guy that always said, why? Why? And I keep asking the why. And that just drove my dad nuts, you know? And finally, he said, because I said so, and that wasn't good enough, I'd say why again and get in trouble, right? And so that rebellious spirit... I began to realize when I became a Christian at 14 and about 16, I started to understand what it meant how God set up authority and how I was supposed to be obedient to those in authority. And I remember apologizing to my dad. And I remember working at a restaurant and this boss was just terrible in the way he treated, treated me. And so I went to work where my sister did down the street at McDonald's. And guess what? They had that same kind of manager there. And then I began to realize it wasn't the manager, it was me. It was my attitude that needed to change. And so I don't know about you, but are the things that God wants to teach you that you keep rebuffing or pushing back on, and he keeps bringing it back into your life till you learn that very important lesson. And this is what's happened to Jacob through his being deceived as a result of his deception to others. We see Leah was designated at first to have children rather than Rachel. We see the favoritism thing going on here now that was passed on from Isaac and Rebekah because Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. So Jacob loved Rachel, but Leah was the one who first had children and Rachel started out the marriage unable to have kids. This created friction and tension and competition between the sisters, much like Sarah and Hagar with Ishmael and Isaac. Then we see the duel between the two sisters, the duel between two sisters, the competition with the names for the kids. This is a great study for you sometime to look up, but as you see, and we'll go through the names of these kids, it was all about competing 
with, between Rachel and Leah. Leah had great faith during her great affliction. She named her child Reuben. Seen, God has seen Leah's misery. Simeon, Lord, heard that Leah was not loved. Levi, she's trying to earn the love of her husband. My husband will be attached to me. Judah, let the Lord be praised. And then Rachel, through Bilhah, one of her handmaidens, had Jacob's children. Dan, God has vindicated me. Naphtali, her great struggle with her sister. They even had a contest of, of being able to take turns uh, sleeping with Jacob so they could uh, have children as well and share their maidservants. So Issachar was born by hire. Zebulon, gift and honor. Joseph, not by the mandrakes because they had a competition with the mandrakes, which is an aphrodisiac to decide who would sleep with uh, Jacob at what time. And so not by the mandrakes, taking away my grace, adding a son. So you see the struggle of the love triangle and the names of the children. God prospered Jacob as he started a great family for God. And the brothers were not supposed to be jealous of one another like their mothers were. But as you know, of course, there was jealousy among Joseph and the other children as well. And so God chose Leah and exalted her to be the first mother of the 12 tribes of Israel, Judah and Levi. But Rachel would have Joseph. Jacob would spend 20 years working in obscurity and drudgery. He would face affliction and deception from Laban as they shared uh, pasture land to grow and build livestock. And God was using those 20 years to build character into Jacob's life. Galatians 6-7 says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. If you reap deception, and deception is going to come your way. If you reap lying, lying is going to come your way. And so don't be deceived about that. And remember what Numbers 32 says, but if you will not do so, behold, you sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Sooner or later, if you don't deal with the habitual sin in your life, the effects of it will be known by all. Well, the application, God reveals our character flaws in order to build character into our lives. He reveals these things to us so we'll repent, we'll learn how to turn from them, and we'll change the trajectory of our life and break the habits and add new habits into our life that are spirit-filled. So the question is, are you learning your lessons the first or second time, or does God have to keep bumping into issues, you with issues in your life over and over, that you are too stubborn to surrender to and give it over to him? Here's some application today, and we'll talk about behavior. Next week, we'll talk about uh, emotion, which I probably should have done them in reverse because emotion or your feelings lead to your behavior. But let's look at the biblical ways to deal with habitual sins of behavior in your life as we close today. First of all, see sin from God's perspective. You say, wow, that's really profound, Pastor. Well, when you really stop and think about your life, okay, what do we do? We tend to rationalize. We tend to blame shift. We tend to water down. I'm not, you know, this wasn't as bad as what somebody else did. But when we look at the perfect law of liberties, it says in James 1, we have to see the mirror of God's word. And what does God say about sin? A verse that um, Austin talked about earlier, 1 John 1, 9, says if we confess, and that word confess in 1 John 1, 9 means that we agree with God about our sin. 
That's why it's important that we're specific about our sin and not just say, God, forgive us our sin, but let the Holy Spirit say, forgive me for saying a wrong thing here or forgive, forgive me for having this wrong motives here to let the Holy Spirit speak to you about specific sins that you agree with God about that are sin. See sin from God's perspective. First John chapter 2, the Apostle John said, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's the goal. Then he puts the big but in there. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation. That means he is the payment. He, Jesus, when he died on the cross, satisfied God's wrath and made the payment for our sins. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. The evidence of our, uh, our repentance and confessing is that we follow God's commandments. Second of all, own the sinful habit in your life before God. Own it. Declare it. Take responsibility for it. Just like David, Psalm 51 Great psalm to read when you're convicted by God. He says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. He says there in Psalm 51. Psalm 32 gives us this promise. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. God transforms us when he forgives us of our sin. Thirdly, repent. And take steps to show you are repentant. It's easy to say to God, I'm sorry, and please forgive me. That's just the beginning. What are we going to do? Repentance means that we're walking in one direction, and we stop, and we go the other direction. We're walking in sin. We're going to stop, and we're going to go and do what God wants us to do. And so Acts 26.20, Paul said, But declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. And notice what it says, they're performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. What are the evidences in your life that you are truly turning away from that sin in your life? Fourthly, begin to renew your mind. As we've said many, many times, Philippians 4.8 gives us a filter of how we're supposed to think. Romans 12.2 says, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, to think God's thoughts, to think how he looks at things and how he views things from the word of God. And then fifthly, replace the old habit with a new habit. This is so important. Many people want to break the habit and they admit that it's wrong and they turn away from it, but then they just allow things to lay dormant. And it tells us in Matthew chapter 12. I encourage you to take your Bible, turn over there for a minute. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. This is a neat little story kind of hidden away in the parables. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 43, very pertinent to this point. Verse 43, he says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, when someone has exercised or demanded the spirit to go out in the name of Jesus. It passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty. The person uh, had devoided themselves of this evil spirit. 
And now is swept and put in order, but then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last day of that person is worse than the first. So also it be with this evil generation. We have a responsibility not to just remove a habit, we have to put in a new habit to replace it so that the evil one can't come back in and work his way into that through his temptations. There's a great book out there called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. He's not a Christian, but very practical. And he gives some steps on how to deal with breaking a habit and, and building a new habit. He had this routine where at 3.30 in the afternoon, he was in an office cubicle, and he got bored. And so he decided it was time to take a break. So he would get up, and he would go to the cafeteria, and he would buy a chocolate chip cookie, and he would eat it on his way, so he'd go to another section of the office and gossip and connect with some of his coworkers. Well, after a period of time, he began to realize he gained eight pounds. And what was going on? He was wondering what was causing this habit to occur in his life. He had to ask himself, what's the cue for this routine? Well, I'm bored. I want to take a break at 3.30 in the afternoon. What's the reward for the routine? To connect with your coworkers. So then he had to experiment with the rewards. Did he really need to go to the cafeteria and get a cookie in order to connect with his uh, friends? And so he understood what was driving his cravings, which drove his behavior. And he isolated what the actual craving was. He wanted to be with some friends. So as he identified the routine, he experimented with the rewards. He thought about it. He isolated the cue. He was bored. And so what did he do? He brought in some healthy snacks. He brought in an apple. And instead of going by the cafeteria, which was his routine, he went straight over as he ate his apple to meet with his coworkers and friends and was able to build a new habit. So identify the routine, he says. Experiment with the rewards. Isolate what's the thing that cues you off to begin this process of this bad behavior and have a plan and write it down. Put it into practice and see if you can build a new habit over time. Just a very practical way to think about building a new habit into your life. Two more things as we close. Don't give up. New habits take time. He said in his book he wasn't always successful. Sometimes every other day he wanted that cookie, so he'd still go to the cafeteria. But over time, he began to go to the cafeteria less and less and began to institute his plan. So don't give up. New habits take time. And lastly, accountability is a big, big help. Accountability to build new habits in our life. To have somebody to pray with you. To have someone to ask you how it's going through the week. Whatever you're experiencing in your life. But accountability can be a big help in being successful in building new habits in your life. The key thought here is what can we take from our mistakes in life and use it to build character and ministry through our lives? What can we take from our mistakes in life and use it to build character and ministry through our lives? There's many people today, because of some of the heartaches and the consequences of their sin and bad habits, and God has redeemed them, and they've learned to move on from those things, those things in their past have become a powerful ministry to help other people overcome the sins and the habits in their lives. And I'm excited that in just a few weeks, we're going to have Celebrate Recovery going on here. And that's a great example of a group of our people, some from our church, some from other churches that are leading that downstairs to work with people who want the accountability 
to break some addictions and habits in their lives. So here's some questions to ponder in your life. What is your motivation to make change in your life? Is it to please God more? Is it to show that you love him by keeping his commandments? Is it that you want to be holy as he is holy? What is your motivation to make change in your life? What will you you do today? What will you begin to do today to identify the root cravings of your bad habit? Just like this author, Mr. Duick, he had to sit down and think, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I headed to that cafeteria every day and gaining weight? What am I going to do about it? And what plan will you write down and execute to build a new habit in your life? Let's bow for prayer. In the quietness of this moment, I just encourage you to let the Holy Spirit, if he hasn't already, point out an area of habitual sin. Maybe it's something as simple as bringing home office products to your house and you know that that's wrong. Or we could go on and on. It's these things of sin and habits are unique to each and every one of us based on who we are and our circumstances in life and our personality. But God knows. And I pray in the quietness of this moment that you'll reflect and maybe let God point out an area of your life that this week you need to sit down and see if you can break the chains of that habit in your life, begin the process. Father, we're just so much like the Apostle Paul when he said in Romans 7.14, I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do and what I hate, I do. We're kind of that person that has two hands, one hand that wants to raise it and praise and honor to you, but the other hand to hold back and to keep certain things to ourselves. Lord, we're never going to reach perfection in this life, but Lord, you want us to continue that upward climb to seek after holiness and perfection through your Holy Spirit leading and directing our lives. And I pray this week that we'll continue on that journey. Sometimes it gets wearying dealing with sin in our life, but help us to be faithful. And if you've, as you've convicted us and challenged us today, may we write down and make some changes that little by little we'll become more like you. We pray and ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.